Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Dr. Ralph Ruban is one of the most well-known pathologists in the field of pancreatic pathology, and he's my guest today. We'll talk about how he got into the field and some of his early mentors, and how he became co-author of a dissection manual that we still use today. And we'll talk about his more recent interest in medical history, including his Nine Greats series and his documentary film. Then after the show, I'll have a preview of my upcoming interview with Dr. Christine Arnold. But right now, here's Dr. Ralph Ruban. You're one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known pathologists in the field of pancreatic pathology. But, but I'd kind of like to go back to the beginning of how you started. When you were in, in medical school, how did you become interested in pathology and then specifically pancreatic pathology? Um, thank you for that question. Actually, it goes back even further because uh, my okay. father was a pathologist. Um, my father uh, was a brilliant physician scientist. He uh, escaped from communist Czechoslovakia, was in a refugee camp in Germany, made his way to the United States, and then was admitted to the University of Chicago, where he received his MD and PhD degrees and was one of the early electron microscopists. And so actually was uh, one of the discoverers of the process that we now call autophagy or autophagy. Okay. Uh, and uh, he wrote a paper in 1963 with uh, uh, Dr. Spargo at the University of Chicago, a classic. And he was uh, kind of inspired me in pathology, always a wonderful, curious uh, person interested in nature, interested in medicine. And so my interest in pathology uh, became uh, very natural when I was in medical school. Um, my interest in pancreas pathology actually is kind of uh, unusual in that um, I was, after training here at Hopkins, uh, was interested in cardiac pathology and read all the heart biopsies here at Hopkins for years. And then one day the head of surgery, John Cameron, came into the sign-out room and he had done, I think, his first 100 or 200 Whipple resections and said he had a much, much better survival than anyone else. Um, he was uh, talking about it at the surgery meetings, but no one believed that he was actually operating on pancreatic cancer. So he needed someone to review these cases. And so I, my hand went up um, and I volunteered to read them. And together with John Boytnot and Johan Offerhaus, we reviewed um, the first, I think it was 100 or 200 Whipples here at Hopkins. And then I just oh. became fascinated and interested in the pancreas and uh, made a dramatic change in my career from uh, transplant immunology to cancer genetics um, and have been uh, at it ever since. Okay. So you were involved with the Whipple procedure pretty much from the very beginning. Yeah, so it was. I mean, I uh, obviously didn't wasn't doing the procedure, but was uh, right. uh, early on, kind of in the heyday when uh, it, it's hard to imagine. But in, in the 1960s and 70s, the Whipple procedures were associated with a 20 to 25 percent operative mortality rate. Um, and wow. so the surgeon you'd sign a consent saying, you know, I understand, I have a one in four chance of never leaving the hospital. And uh, uh, John Cameron, my, my good friend now just dedicated his career to improving the outcomes. And in his hands, the operative mortality rate fell to less than 2%. Um, and he actually reduced the operative mortality rate in the state of Maryland uh, single-handedly because more patients were coming to him. So as more and more patients came to Hopkins for surgery, then it became very natural to study it, uh, the disease, pancreas cancer, because uh, we had this unique opportunity 
uh, here at Hopkins because there were so many patients uh, coming here. Okay. And I think you kind of touched on this one a, a little bit already, but I, I like to ask people stories about mentors or early influences in their careers. And, and you spoke up about one already, but are there, are there others that, that influenced you early on? Yeah. And there's so many here at, at Hopkins and that, you know, there, it's such a collegial collaborative place that it really, um, uh, there, there are too many to mention. There's some, uh, Jack Yardley, who was the first head of GI pathology and then the chair, w- wonderful influence. I so admire his approach to uh, life and approach to medicine, his kind of uh, very giving approach. You know, John Boynton, another one, he's a, a liver pathologist and again, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, but also uh, one of the most interested in helping others. And uh, so there's a, a long list and of, of people who had an influence who I, I just so deeply admire and, and want to be like when I grow up. <laughs> Later on now in your career, when you're one of the experts, are there people still that influence you? Oh, of course. Yeah. And I'm, I'm humbled by, I think my friend and colleague, Scott Kern, is a wonderfully brilliant, creative scientist. And I so admire his willingness to jump in the deep end on science and, and do something extraordinarily creative. And of course, it was his creativity that helped lead to the discovery of the second breast cancer gene, BRCA2, and a pancreatic cancer here that led to the discovery of SMAD4 um, and many other discoveries. And more recently, I have the pleasure of working with Bert Goldstein and Kim Kinsler and others in cancer genetics here. And for me, it's, uh, again, like being a kid in a candy store. It's They're just such wonderful collegial collaborative colleagues that it makes coming to work fun. Sure, sure. Let's jump a little bit ahead in time then. You co-founded the Familial Pancreas Tumor Registry, which I believe was 1994 there at Hopkins. So what was like the initial goal of this program and, and what was your role in, in founding it? Yeah, so the National Familial Pancreas Tumor Registry, um, we started here at Hopkins. Actually, uh, it was early in my career, and one of the neuro-oncologists came to me, uh, Skip Grossman, and he wanted to study familial brain uh, tumors because he had a number of his patients said, oh, I have a sibling or a parent-child with brain cancer, um, and would I review the brain tumor pathology? And I said, Sure. Um, I, I did it, and it, that was interesting because I think he found a, a strong evidence of an environmental impact that the people were diagnosed at the same point in time or similar points in time, not necessarily uh, a genetic influence. Um, but this uh, prompted me to start uh, the National Familial Pancreas Tumor Registry here at Hopkins, and it has grown uh, over the years. And now there are over 7,500 families enrolled. And what's quite wow. remarkable to give you a sense of 1,350 of these families have two family members. By over 500 have three family members. Over 180 have four family members. And I think uh, there are something like 92 families with more than five family members who lost a life to pancreatic cancer. And what we found early, we would send out a newsletter and say, you know, this is uh, some of our discoveries that we're making. And we included a postcard in it and asked them to send it back. How are you doing? And quite remarkably now, I think we've had three over 300 postcards return where the family says, since we joined, there's a new pancreatic cancer in our family. 
if you can imagine, oh, wow. for the devastation of having lost four or five family members to pancreatic cancer and then another one. So it's a real uh, one that provides strong evidence since these are prospective cases that pancreatic cancer does indeed run in some families. Um, and uh, two, it's a strong motivator to study the, the why that happens. Right, right. So I'm, I'm curious how how you got people interested in, like the families interested in being a part of this program, because this is 1994. So this is, there were no smartphones. Internet was rudimentary at best. How, how did this work? Actually, we had one of the first disease specific websites uh, ever created was uh, a pancreatic cancer website here at Hopkins. Okay. Uh, again, by chance had a, a met with a, a wonderful uh, patient and, and their son and the father was suffering from pancreatic cancer and the son, adult son, said to me, you know, you're doing this so interesting. You should start a web page. And I kind of nodded my head knowingly. And then they laughed. And I, I said, what the heck is a web page? <laughs> I had a really remarkable assistant, Amanda Leapman at the time. And she said, you know, Dr. Rubin, I'm studying HTML coding. Why don't we make a website? And so we created, I think it's one of the, certainly the first disease-specific website here at Hopkins. And um, it just uh, took off. We had a discussion board that we modeled after the discussion board that the Mariazzi brothers on public radio, you know, the car repair guys had on their website. Um, and, and the users of that um, from across the world uh, began to join together on the discussion board, sharing their stories and um, uh, helping each other and, and then uh, many joining our research protocols here at Hopkins. So actually the, the internet was uh, key to our success. Okay, okay, kind of in the right place at the right time. Th that had to feel real good to get those kind of stories from, from people all over the world that you were helping them in that way. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a big motivator. You know, some of them would just break your hearts. A uh, uh, one mm -hmm. thing I... I you know, my husband's gone, died at the age of 45. And I remember his smell when he got out of the shower and just, you know, bring you to tears. Yeah. Beating him, but a real, get you focused on hopefully what are important questions, not just interesting questions when it comes to fighting. The mm -hmm. And okay. And, and of course that the tumor registry that still continues to this day, the, the website is still there. Yeah, yeah. I, I passed it off to my colleague, Allison Klein, um, and she now runs it and does a great job running it and has helped discover some of the familial cancer genes because of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So throughout your career, you've authored hundreds of papers and, and several books, but there's being a PA, there's one of those books in particular that I'd like to talk about a little bit. So that's uh, Surgical Pathology Dissection in Illustrated Guide. And in this book, the first edition was published in 1997. And I believe there's a second edition and, and it's still widely used, you know, in, in gross pathology. So can we go back to the beginning of that? Like what was your involvement in the inception of that book? Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. That's a good question. So again, it's purely by chance. So um, I, uh, there's a gym here, the Cooley center, and I would play basketball before work in the mornings uh, okay. and, uh, with a, a wonderful uh dear friend of mine, Tim Phelps, and who's much, much better at basketball than I am. And we play together every morning. One day I said, you know, Tim, um, we have to do something to commemorate our friendship. And he said, okay, we should do that. And I, I, he said, I said, well, what do you do? He said, I'm a medical illustrator. And I said, well, I'm a surgical pathologist. So why don't we write a book together? 
I'm, I'm not exactly that's how it came to be. So he said, okay, we'll write a book together. And then uh, got uh, Bill Westra and Christina Isaacson to, to join. And um, it was just a, a fun thing to do. Uh, Tim would come and uh, watch us dissect and illustrate. And he does these beautiful pen and ink drawings. Yeah. And um, and we uh, just went in it and, and published the first edition. It was successful, made some laminated plates. And then Springer came asked us to do a second edition and it's it's it is fun to see the, the old book still there in the uh cutting room of people uh, using it uh, to cut oh yeah everybody still uses it and that's interesting the story about the illustrations because that's one to me anyways i think that's one of the strong points of the book or maybe even the strongest one is the illustrations are so good and they're, yeah, and they're labeled you, and things yeah if you if you go to the beginning the dedication of the book you see to the breakfast club fond memories of hooping it up and and that's the reference to uh, our early basketball days as the origins of the book. Oh, that's interesting. So I have to ask you then, there's only two, two editions of the book. Why, why did it stop there? Do you, do you have any idea? They, they asked us to do a third edition, but I think we all became so busy with our uh, other tasks. And um, I'd, I'd love to join with someone to make a, create a third edition who has the time and energy uh, to, to do it. Um, but yeah, I think particularly now as, uh, you know, the guidelines for exactly what to include in the pathology report may have changed slightly over time. It certainly would sure. be to, re to update it again. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Getting back to kind of the te technology aspect, you were part of creating an app for teaching pancreatic pathology. And then another app that was um, specifically for educating patients on pancreatic pathology and pancreatic cancer there again what what was your involvement then with starting those um another good question thank you um so it, it's uh we have a wonderful art, uh, department of artists applied to medicine here at hopkins and my friend tim phelps is a professor in that department and they have a number of uh, students every year master's students and over the years i've worked with different students on their uh, theses and uh, one year, an extremely talented uh, medical illustrator, Bona Kim, uh, came and uh, wanted to uh, do a project with me. And I think I had just purchased my first iPad. And I said, why don't we make an iPad app? And Bona just went at it and really created some, again, beautiful illustrations. But she also, using uh, 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 PowerPoint slides, uh, created the branching algorithms or helped the design the overall look of the app. And so again, it's it's a what I what I love so much about being here at Hopkins is this collegial collaborative environment where mm -hmm. people with different backgrounds, different interests can work together and synthesize something new. And so this was a, a really exciting project with Bona Kim. Um, we made it free uh, for people to download on on the through the app store. Unfortunately, because of programming costs, we can only offer it on the iPad. I wish we could offer it on other media as well. Um, but then we followed that up with a pancreas cytopathology app. And that platform, the idea is it's really database, a common shared platform that pulls data, the images and the text. And so we've been able to build a series of iPad apps uh, now using that same platform, um, one on prostate pathology, brain tumors, kidney transplant, um, you know, uh, numerous uh, thyroid, uh, you name it, we're trying to develop uh, one on each organ to help teach, to educate the, the pathology public. 
Okay. Okay. And what kind of feedback did you get on, on these apps from people that had used them? Like specifically the patients, did they, did you hear from people that said that it had helped them? Yeah. So the, the other app, which you mentioned is not part of the pathology series. That's again, was, is directed at patients. Mm-hmm. We call it eye care. Um, and a, a very positive, I think, um, uh, what we've also done is because, because of the technology limitations, you know, not all patients can afford an iPad. Um, we moved a lot of the material to our website. And so okay. I, most people uh, now access it through the web portal. Uh, but again, bonus il- illustrations and a lot of the stuff are, are still there on, on the website. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting, like talking to you and, and hearing your story, it, it feels like you've like the, the technology advanced at just the right time for you to take advantage of it. And then at the same time, you were open to these new things and, and to use them and to, and to make something useful out of them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's a great point. And I think that, you know, technologies are always changing. And I think to, to have a, a idea or a passion and then to be able to embrace the technology, it's just a unique opportunity uh, in life. And I think Osler, Sir William Osler, who's the first uh, the chairman of medicine here, spoke about how lucky he was to have been at the, the founding of American medicine. Uh, here at Hopkins. And so in many ways, I think my career is, is the same. I just feel so lucky to have been able to live through a revolution in cancer genetics, to have uh, lived through these new technologies. You know, it's not given to everyone's life. And I, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And it's an exciting time to be part of all those things. Can, can we talk about the, the Saul Goldman Pancreatic Cancer Research Center? Because I know you're the you're the director of the center. When was this established? Yeah, so the the Goldman Center I think goes back out of 2005, and it's uh, a, a wonderful family in New York. Saul and, and Lillian Goldman are the parents. Uh, Lillian died of pancreatic cancer, and then um, their their daughter uh, daughters Jane and Amy, um, and to honor their parents, founded this uh, center here at Hopkins with a significant donation. And okay. what it's trying to do is have an impact in the war against pancreatic cancer, again, emphasizing collegial collaborative approaches. So even though the center is uh, based here in the Department of Pathology, um, over the years, we've given out, I think, 150 grants to over 50 different investigators at Hopkins across many different uh, departments. And the, uh, again, the idea is not for me to keep the money myself, but rather how can we improve the field, help the field? Um, and so we, we give out grants. We hold an annual think tank where we bring in experts. Uh, Reed Jobs, the son of Steve Jobs, joins us every year as does new members of the Goldman family and other thought leaders. And it's just a, a blast to have uh, some of the world's experts, and it's a different subject every year, think about what are the big problems and, and how can we address them? in a very open and creative forum. And so for me, that's one of the highlights of every year is the Saul Goldman think tank. And it's mm-hmm. because of the Goldman family and their vision. I, I imagine the think tank would, would have to be done virtually this year, huh? Yeah, yeah, we did it virtually. And it was very effective, actually, because um, we were able to bring in, it was just wonderful. We had colleagues from Japan, uh, Israel, Germany, Italy, um, the Netherlands, 
California. So we had some people waking up. One of the participants you could see was still in his pajamas from California when we started eight in the morning and other people getting ready to go to bed in Japan. And I was uh, wonderful. Our Japanese colleagues, I think, stayed up till two or three in the morning. Some of them knowing they had to get up at four or five to start their next day uh, and participating in the think tank. And so I, I love also the, the international uh, aspects of, of medicine today are just uh, so fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, definitely the technology makes that easier to do than, than it's been probably ever before. We'll get back to our interview with Dr. Ruban in just a minute. So it's December, and depending on what holiday you're celebrating, you might be looking for gift ideas. I'm going to recommend the book, The Queen of All Poisons, and here's why. Not only is it a great book, and of course, Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani was a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago, but also a portion of the proceeds from the book goes to support the CAP Foundation's See, Test, and Treat program. Now, if you don't know what this is, the program provides free cancer screening and health education to underserved areas. So these are things like cervical cancer screening and breast cancer screening. And during the month of December, you can enter to win a signed copy of the book from Goodreads, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that. So pick up The Queen of All Poisons, either for yourself or for someone you love. Not only will you be getting a great book, but you'll also be helping those in need. And that's what this time of year is all about. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show. Now back to Dr. Ralph Ruban on the People of Pathology podcast. I want to talk a little bit about your more recent research, and you're kind of concentrating a bit on precursor pancreatic lesions. Why is this of, of interest to you? So this goes back to that first series of Whipples that I reviewed with John Boynton and Johann Offerhaus. And um, uh, we were, as our purpose was to review the cancers, um, but very quickly uh, we noted that there were often these precursor lesions that uh, called pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia in association with the cancers. And then as the genetic advances began to progress with invasive pancreatic cancer, it then became very natural for us as pathologists, since you know tissue is the issue and we're morphologists, to take that genetic understanding and apply it to either microdissected or in some way very cell-specific way to the precursor lesions, and then help show that um, these precursor lesions and that we thought were precursors, in fact, shared the same genetic abnormalities as invasive cancers, and we're able to build this uh, progression model. Uh, so, you know, just as there's a progression in the colon from an adenoma to invasive cancer, so right. there's a progression in the pancreas. And uh, again, a wonderful collaborative effort with morphologists, pathologists, and leading-edge cancer geneticists uh, to uh, microdissect and study these lesions. And the hope is that by understanding the precursor lesion, we can uh, detect cancers before they're invasive and incurable. Um, and so trying to move that early detection uh, window earlier to a curable state of the disease. So it's kind of, a for me, an exciting area and one that's very natural for a pathologist to study. Sure. Okay. So the goal is kind of the diagnostic 
the early diagnosis of pancreatic lesions. Has there been any progress made in that area or is it still kind of too early to tell? It's it's a real challenge with pancreatic cancer. Obviously, wonderful successes with colon cancer and other forms of cancer. Pancreatic right. is hard because it's a relatively rare disease. If it's you know nine per hundred thousand per year, that it's to develop an early detection test where you don't have too many false positives relative to the true positives. A real challenge. So again, in another collaborative effort here with my colleagues uh, Marcia Canto, Mean Canto, and Mike Goggins. They're working on, it's called a CAPS, Cancer of the Pancreas Screening. And this is where, remember, we've, we've st- we're studying families. We show that they're at increased risk and focusing the early detection on individuals with a strong family history. Um, and uh, Mimi has shown that using endoscopic ultrasound, she can detect precursor lesions and early uh, cancers. And in fact, one of my uh, favorite stories, and I can use his name because he allows me to, is... Um, when I first started the National Familial Pancreas Tumor Registry, uh, the head of surgery, John Kierman, went up to Maine, and a, a surgeon there approached him and said, Dr. Kierman, I've lost two family members to pancreatic cancer. And this surgeon's name was Tom Collins. And John Kierman said, well, go talk to Ralph. And I still have those letters he sent back and forth. And Tom participated in our registry. And then after about 10 years, we started this early detection program. And Tom was the first to, to, to join and came religiously uh, for his uh, endoscopic ultrasound. During that time, he lost three more family members to pancreatic cancer. So he lost a total of family members to pancreatic cancer. And when you know it, uh, Dr. Cantor detects a nine millimeter asymptomatic lesion in his pancreas. He undergoes surgery. He's the sixth one in his family. But his was detected when it was just less than a centimeter. And uh, he, Tom just sent me a wonderful letter, uh, email celebrating his sixth year of being disease-free. So it's, it's hard uh, because pancreatic cancer is rare and asymptomatic and deep in the abdomen. But right. in high-risk groups, it can be done. Wow, that, that's an amazing story. We, we talked a little bit about the, the genetics and about the Whipple procedure and about the early detection what would you say, and it probably includes those things, but what would you say would be the greatest advances in treatment of pancreatic cancer that you've seen in your career? Yeah, so certainly, as you allude to, the improvements in the safety and efficacy of the Whipple procedure and moving it forward so that more and more more advanced lesions can now be safely resected, even if they involve some of the large vessels, now the surgeons can resect them. Moving to robotic, uh, less invasive surgeries, uh, clearly improving some patient outcome. But I think really the, the biggest advances have been in in uh, an understanding of the genetics of familial pancreatic cancer, uh, because you can predict who's at risk of developing pancreatic cancer. You can predict if their family members are at risk. Um, so for instance, BRCA2, the second breast cancer gene, increases the risk of breast cancer, but also increases the risk of pancreatic cancer. And so identifying uh, someone with pancreatic cancer who has a germline BRCA2 mutation, you can help the other family members. Like they can go get mammographies and get tested and so on. But also, very importantly, they've been proven to be the uh, biggest target or most effective target for therapy. So the germline mutations, not the somatic mutations, the germline mutations turn out to be wonderfully targetable. So if you have a pancreatic cancer and you have a germline BRCA2 mutation, your tumor may respond to a PARP inhibitor. 
and, and incredible responses are seen. If you oh, wow. have uh, a germline mutation in one of the Lynch syndrome genes and one of the DNA mismatch repair genes, your tumor may be wonderfully susceptible to immunotherapy. So I think the uh, the biggest advances for me are that really impact patient care are understanding of the familial pancreatic cancer genes, uh, again, because they have an implication for all the other family members and because many of them are therapeutic targets. The somatic mutations, not as much. They turn out to be interesting, but there hasn't been great progress, uh, great home runs in uh, treating based on the patterns of somatic mutations in the cancers. Now, more recently, you've, you've, it seems like you've developed an interest in medical history. You've done on a couple of interesting projects in that area, but how did you get first interested in medical history? Um, great question. I, I wasn't interested when I first came to Hopkins, but I think over the years, you just hear these stories of these remarkable people. And okay. um, I began to get more and more interested uh, in, and then uh, one story in particular, that of uh, William Stewart Halstead, who was the first chairman of surgery here. Um, I, I love the arc to his life. So he started as this young, uh, gregarious man in Manhattan, growing up in a wealthy family. Um, he uh, you know, goes to, is tutored, and then he um, goes to Yale, uh, where there's no evidence he checked out a book when he was at Yale from the library, but he's right. an athlete. He scores the first touchdown ever scored in a football game played in the United States. And then he decides to go into medicine. And he goes to what's now Columbia a Medical School, graduates at the top of his class. He's the bell of the town, um, operating day and night. He does the first gallbladder surgery. It's on his mother on the kitchen table in the middle of the night by candlelight. He does the That's first crazy. Yeah. He does the first transfusion in the United States. It's on his sister. She's given birth and he's hemorrhaging and they call him to say goodbye. And he just takes a needle, takes his own blood, gives it to her and then saves her life. Um, <laughs> so this great rise, meteoric rise. Um, and then... He's also a scientist. He had studied in Europe, and he reads a paper by a student of Sigmund Freud. And if you put cocaine in the eye, you can touch the eye. And so he gathers his colleagues together, and they start injecting each other with cocaine in their nerves. He was interested in painless surgery, and they all become cocaine addicts. And uh, almost all of them die. Uh, Halstead was one of the few to live, and he's institutionalized in Butler Sanatorium in Providence, Rhode Island, where... He is switched from cocaine to morphine. They give him morphine to cool the fires of his cocaine addiction. Um, and so this gregarious, bold, daring New York surgeon is now lying. And if you can imagine 1884, 1885, being a, an addict in an insane asylum. And Hopkins opens. And the hero of every story, of course, is a pathologist. And William Henry Welsh, who's the chairman of pathology and the first dean, invites his friend down from the insane asylum to come down to Hopkins and Halstead leads the department of surgery for uh, over 30 years and revolutionizes surgery. And he's a completely different person than he was in New York here at Hopkins. He's antisocial. He's slow and meticulous. And this is what you want. You know, you go to a surgeon, you don't say how fast are you going to be doc? You say, you're going to be careful. Right. He's the one who introduced the, uh, all of these techniques and trained a generation of surgeons so just a kind of a, a, a rise, a fall, and then a rise again, a different person, like the mythical Phoenix. Um, and of course, he dies. He himself gets gallstones and, 
and then his uh, is bleeding and his residents lay down next to him and give him a transfusion. Um, so there's a, some symmetries to the story. But so uh, I fell in love with a story like that and actually did a documentary for uh, PBS. Right. Life of Halstead. Um, if you look, I'm the drug addicted eye and the vein when they stepped and Eli acted in it. Um, but uh, it, oh, I, that, that was you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's, I, I love history and, um, I think there, there's such profound lessons for us today and particularly in times of a pandemic that we can learn from those who came before us, how to deal with adversity, how to deal with problems and, and that you emerge often on the other side. Sure. I, I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes for this episode to the, uh, the documentary on, on Dr. Halstead, cause it's, it's really good. And I think everybody should watch it. And we should mention some of the things that he's that he started that still are in use today. For example, uh, patient temperature charts was something he, he began. You mentioned kind of the notion of safe surgery, even, even residency training, which didn't exist. He kind of started that program that, that still is in use today. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he started because of his addiction. He needed someone to, he, I should mention he may, he, unbeknownst to everyone was secretly never overcame his morphine addiction here and was till his death remained a morphine addict. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So these incredible revolutionary changes that still impact us today, but more the philosophy, I think. And if you, um, there, uh, you know, I mentioned Osler and his philosophy of what it means to be a physician. Uh, I, I just love, you know, they're as applicable today as they were 100 years ago. You know, consume your own smoke so that those around you won't be annoyed with the dust and soot of your complaints. You know, mm-hmm. what beautiful uh, ideas that are as applicable. And then there's also we should learn uh, uh, that our past is not perfect here at Hopkins and in many institutions. There's a history of racism and, and, and sexism. And when you study it, you go, oh, my God, I, I can't believe that happened. And we owe a debt moving forward uh, to, to help uh, correct this. You know, we can't ignore the sins and problems of the past. We have to address them and do something about it. So and, you know, whether it's uh, Dorothy Reed of the Reed Sternberg cell, who is a fellow here, you know, discovered the, the cell of Hodgkin's disease and showed that it's not tuberculosis. And her reward was, well, you can't join the faculty because you're not a woman. You're not a man. You're a woman. You know, and uh, the, here, the, some of the racial bias in the past, in some institutions, blood banks were separated. You know, black and white blood was kept separated. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that. And, and as I said, we, we owe a debt to, and we have to correct that. So the history, I, I think, is is important because it can give us lessons in hard times, but also um, it can keep us focused on uh, doing the right thing. Sure. And you, you touched a lot on a lot of these uh, things in the series you did just this past summer, I believe it was, The Nine Greats. And yeah, and you talked about Dorothy Reed, William Olsler's in there, William Welch, which... Actually, I have to ask you, in making the documentary, why did you go with the surgeon rather than the pathologist? <laughs> My next documentary would be the pathologist. No, I okay. think <laughs> it has such an extraordinary arc to it um, that, you know, it's uh, Welsh is amazing uh, pathologist and really the, the dean of American medicine at the founding of American uh, medicine. Uh, Hall said to me, had this rise and fall. Uh, I, I find so fascinating, but the, uh, each of their lives can teach us something uh, different 
um, and we can learn from them. And there's uh, actually, I've added a 10th now, Max Bradle, who is the head of uh, Art as Applied to Medicine here, was an amazing, uh, has kind of started medical illustration here in the United States. And, and he oh. a great story too, and including with H.L. Uh, Mencken, who was here in Baltimore during Prohibition, brewing illegal beer um, and, and things like that. So they all have uh, great stories. And, and Max Bradle is, a, is another one. So I, I, I've been not nine greats, made it 10. It doesn't sound quite as exclusive as nine greats, but uh, <laughs> and, and hopefully those will be available on, on the web uh, as recorded lectures. Oh, they are already. I'll, I'll link those in the show notes also. I, I've, I've watched them. They're, they're really good. Do you have plans to continue the series in some way? We're thinking of, of writing a book, illustrating you know, with a lot of uh, pictures, and so we're looking to find a publisher now. But um, uh, yeah, I'm always uh, interested in medical history, and uh, I can't read uh, uh, fiction. I can only read nonfiction. I don't know why, and so I, I particularly love mm-hmm. history. And um, so yeah, I'm sure there'll be more coming down the pike. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to the book, um, Dr. Ruban. Is, is there anything I, I haven't asked you that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? No, no. One, uh, thank you. And I can tell you how valuable it is in pathology to have a great team, whether it's uh, pathology assistants who play such a critical role in, in what we do to our peers and colleagues in medicine, to our, our, uh, in pathology, to our colleagues in surgery and oncology. And so it's a, a real pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for including me in your series. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Great big thanks to Dr. Ruban. He was such a warm, friendly guy to talk with, and I'm really honored that I had the chance to do that. Uh, You can find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And of course, make sure you follow the show on Twitter at peopleofpath. And as always, if you like this episode, make sure you share it with someone you know, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of my upcoming interview with Dr. Christina Arnold. This brings up another sort of recurring theme that I've heard throughout the interviews I've done that pretty much nobody has throughout their career. It is not a straight line. It goes, there's a lot of curves, a lot of blind curves even, and and that's okay. And I feel like the things, your experiences and maybe the places you've worked and the people you've worked with, they all make you the person that you are right now. And if you had not done those things, you wouldn't be where you are today. Is that, is that sound? I agree sound 100%. Right? Yeah. It's so funny. When you're in the process, it may feel like you're bumping around in the dark and that you're failing and stumbling. I think when you look back at your life, though, when I look back now, I think that was a straight line. I mean, I, it was difficult because I, I thought it would be this other straight line, but everything kind of led to now. So if I hadn't done gotten into social media, then I wouldn't have gotten into 
PathPod and I wouldn't have had the skills to do your path and focus, you know? So now looking right. back, I could say, yeah, at like, just like you're saying, every step, as long as you are appreciating for what it is and learning from it, it takes you to the next best version of yourself. To hear more from Dr. Arnold, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.